Hello and welcome to the fourth edition of the podcast Supernova. This is Marco Germinario. And this is Alessandro Maccarini. And yes, Alessandro, you know, yesterday I just watched a movie and uh, I was thinking how a movie is made. You know, there is someone that writes the movie, they write the screenplay, and then, you know, they find the producers that um, takes care or, um, of the production organization of the movie. But what happens to the movie when it's done? What is the process from uh, being ready until it's released to the theaters? And who who does that and how is done, how is promoted? Do you know that? I don't know that. And that's why I'm, I'm here actually to listen to our guest for today. And for sure, it's a very interesting topic. And I'm uh, looking forward to hear what our guest has to say on this. So I think you, you know him better and you can probably introduce Nikolai. Yes, our guest is a friend of mine, Nikolai Mathias. He's the CEO of US Groovy. Groovy is a media agency and a tech company specialized in uh, helping studios and distributors in releases of films. Welcome, Nikolai. Thank you very much, Marco. Thank you very much, Alex. Yeah, if you can tell us a little bit about this unknown process, what is uh, distribution? What does it mean? And uh, what is the story of distribution, especially in the last years after, you know, this Netflix event and after this uh, COVID that, I guess, uh, stimulated digitalization and distribution of the movie more in uh, platform rather than uh, studios? Well, um, before I, um, I jump into saying uh, too much, I just want to state that uh, this is merely an observation from my professional standpoint in the film industry, being a, a marketeer for film studios and film distributors. I'm in, uh, in no way uh, a lecturer from a film institute that has a theoretical uh, base of knowledge, but I, I do work in the industry and have done that for the last five years. And, and as an effect of that has been part of um, some of the transformations that's happened, especially in the last 12 months but also just in the last decade when you look at how films are being distributed. But you mentioned yourself that there is this regular process of a script writer writing a script and afterwards it's getting picked up by a producer that finds a director and then shoots the movie and then what happens. And uh, I think the common understanding of films release is that it's something that happens with the big film studios, the Disney's, the Universal's, the Warner's uh, of the world because that is the blockbuster titles that everybody everyone knows about and uh, that is the movies that are getting a global release and these kind of films are usually produced by the studios themselves meaning everything happens on the one roof so to say but it's fair to address the fact that there's a majority of films that are being produced that are not part of film studios set up where there is a more hands-on process that takes place once the film has been shot because at that point the film would usually go to a sales agent and this sales agent will travel across the world to these infamous film festivals such as the Cannes Film Festivals or Toronto and Canada, Sundance, Berlin Film Festival and there they would actually meet up with small film distributors meaning someone from Denmark could have a film distribution company and they want to acquire the rights for this particular movie to either show it in cinemas or have the digital to rights, um, which is more common these days, to show the film through different streaming services. So in order to summarize, when a movie is ready, the films go to this sale agent, which is a figure that travels to different film uh, festivals, and there he finds some film distributors. And these distributors, they acquire the rights to show in cinemas or digital platforms. What does it mean exactly they acquire the rights? Can you make an example of what they do exactly when they acquire the rights? 
Well, to answer that in the best kind of way, then it will be interesting to just address how film production has changed with the uh, introduction of uh, CGI and special effects, because the production cost of making a movie has dropped drastically compared to the days where you would have Star Wars or Indiana Jones taking up a cinema's nine o'clock or seven o'clock slot for six months at a time, because there wasn't other movies in that kind of scale to show. But when it production cost lowered, then the quantity of films being produced also drastically increased. And on the back of that, there was suddenly higher competition and uh, therefore uh, the necessity of having a sales agent going out and pitching more than one movie was necessary. And what happens, as, as you asked before, what, what is the relationship with the uh, distributors and the cinemas in particular? Then that relationship is a direct effect of the fact that there's a large quantity of films. There's actually up to six films being released every single week into cinema and that number I, I remember when I heard that the first time was surprisingly high because you normally hear about the tentpole releases the big blockbuster films and you don't really think about the fact that there's a lot of other films releasing at the same time so six movies every single week are premiering in the cinema and that also means that the distributors main goal is to keep a good relationship with the cinema so so that they can negotiate a good time slot in the program for their movie. So that's like the primary relationship there is between a distributor and a cinema is to make sure that they negotiate a good placement for the movie so that they can keep the movie in, in cinemas more than a couple of weeks after the premiere date. And that is a, a direct effect of the fact that production cost has dropped so drastically that there's simply saturation in the market as an effect there. Yeah. I actually have a question about the business behind this. And in particular, I was wondering when a producer gives a large budget to make a movie, then he doesn't know yet how much money will get back from, from selling tickets in movie theater. So it's actually, it's a business that the producer really doesn't know if it will get back money or it will lose money, right? Correct. And to complement that fact, there is tax subsidiaries to get from different countries where you go and produce the film. So a way to de-risk an investment of producing a movie is to have a co-production country where you potentially get your costs deducted tax-wise because a country would be interested in hosting a film production that maybe spans over 6 to 12 months where you fly in 60 people or how many people that are part of a film production that will you know, spend money locally during the time they are there. But you are touching base on something that is one of the first bigger risks that you take as a film distributor. The producer, in most instances, doesn't have to care about the movie selling any tickets at all because they get a one-time fee or they get a production, you know, a fee of ticket sales later on. But sometimes it is a one-time payment they get for producing the movie. And as soon as the sales agent steps in, they don't really carry the risk anymore. It's the distributor that has to make sure that the film actually breaks even in the cinemas. Okay, so it's actually the distributor that owns the risk in the end. So it's not the producer. Yeah. Okay, okay. It's a little bit interesting to me. What could be the business agreement between the distributor and the theaters? I mean, what is the business model of the distributor in general? And I don't know if they change all the time or there it's something uh, standard. 
Well, so first of all, we have to think about the fact that up until the introduction of streaming platforms, there was really only one, maybe two places to get your film in front of an audience. There's, of course, the, the cinema, and not to underestimate the fact that there's been TV and DVD sale. But cinema has up until, and still is, throughout the history of film, been the distribution channel where all the money are made back from the investment into a film. So as an effect of that, the cinemas has always been the primary, uh, what you could say, uh, decision makers in the industry in terms of how will a film be released and what kind of placement they would get cinema. Because the money you make when a film is in the cinema is much, much bigger than what you would get from DVD sales down the line or selling the, the rights to TV. Of course, there was a golden era of DVD and Blu-rays in the late 90s where that was a good business model. But over just a decade, that's been shrunken down to being a, a very small revenue stream. And digital has taken over as another way of distributing your movie in a much cheaper way and in a global way from the beginning. But the money being made on it has been much smaller through the introduction of piracy, for example, or the concept that you can pay 5 to $10 a month and then get access to unlimited content through a, a streaming platform such as uh, Netflix or Disney Plus or one of the other players that has entered the market. So to answer your question, then the business model is for most film studios and distributors a 50-50 share of each cinema ticket sold. So that means if you sell a cinema ticket for, I guess the price today would be $8, then there's $4 for the distributors and $4 for the cinema. And the cinema, on the other hand, has the option of selling uh, popcorns at a very high price point and can therefore justify paying rent to all the employees and the technology that they Popcorn need. Popcorn is the business. Popcorn is the business, actually. If, if you break it down, then it is concessions, as, as we call it. You know, the popcorns, the sodas and so on generates the revenue for the cinemas. Guys, if you want to promote cinema, buy a lot of popcorns, I guess. Very true, indeed. So let me see if I understand correctly. So first of all, I acquire, if you are the producer, if you're the one investing money to make the movie and I'm a distributor, I pay you an amount of money to own the rights, the exclusivity on this movie, right? Exactly. So I pay you upfront. There's usually an upfront that is, again, I'm talking out from a, a standpoint of observing that part of the industry. You know, my closest relationships is with the distributors after the deal is done. But it is correct that there is either an upfront amount where you, where you pay a minimum price and then there's a payback system after the film goes to cinema. And that is usually the case. Otherwise, the producer would, you know, simply recoup the investment too far in the future to be able to produce more films. Yeah. And then uh, as a distributor, I go to the theater, to the cinemas I know, and I tell them, you know, I have this amazing movie. Let's show it. And the cinemas decide when to show it, basically. And then we, they give me as distributors the 50% of income. This is, of course, the general standard and still when the, th the theaters were the, the main way to distribute movies. But this is more or less very simplified. Exactly. Yeah. And you're, you're touching base on, on something very interesting when we are talking about being the only way to distribute a film because the cinemas has, as I said before, been the distribution channel where you made the money you invested into uh, producing a film. But that whole model has been challenged with Corona. So we cannot have this conversation without touching base on how the industry has been forced into changing its dynamic as a direct effect of the fact that people couldn't go to the cinema and see the movies. Because as we talked about before, there are six films every week. 
and each of these films needs to negotiate a place in the schedule for the cinema. And um, now that we've had almost a year for some countries, even more for others, where nobody has been able to go to the cinema in limited capacity, we've suddenly had like a, a kind of bottleneck situation where we are looking at so many big films that has should have been released that suddenly has gotten their release date pushed. And now we are on such a saturated market that you cannot have Disney releasing three of their tentpole titles uh, in, in the same month because around the movie for a big film studio, there's uh, McDonald's Happy Meals with action figures, there's uh, lunch boxes, there's uh, merchandise, there's a whole big machinery that goes uh, around a film release that means that you cannot just postpone the release. So, so at some point, some of the bigger studios had to take a risk and saying, okay, we're not going to release this movie in theaters. We're actually going to put it directly out on a streaming service. And that is what happened during Corona, that Universal Studios was the first major studio to say, we're going to release the sequel of Trolls, the animated uh, movie, simultaneously. So a limited theatrical release and cinemas, and then directly available on uh, streaming services at the same time, but at a higher price point, meaning it would not be included in your subscription for the 5 to $10, but you would pay $20 for having the film available for 48 hours, which is kind of rental model that Amazon, for example, uses for some of their film releases. Okay. And I also believe that, I mean, since these uh, streaming platforms came up, if I understand correctly, these uh, streaming platforms they are simultaneously producers and also distributors. For example, if I think about a movie by Netflix, in that case, Netflix is both producer and distributor, right? That is something that they aggressively has uh, prioritized over the last uh, decade. So they actually started out by going out to production companies and acquiring films. But Netflix did a model where they said, we're not going to share the rights to this movie at all with you guys. As soon as we seal the deal, then it is ours. And that's why they can also put the label of a Netflix original on many more film titles than they actually produce. That's simply a fact of the matter that they acquired the rights in a way where they can put that label on it, despite the fact that it was actually produced somewhere else. But Netflix has converted into what you could call full-fledged film studio, where they have production set up, they have script writers in-house. Uh, so they have vertically integrated their value chain now so that they can go out and produce content on their own. But just to have some, some recent news in, in the area of acquiring film rights, then Netflix just paid, uh, or not just, but a couple of months ago, paid $465 million for the sequel and prequel for the movie Knives Out that originally had a theatrical release and, and later came on, on streaming. So they are still going out and buying content because these days it's all about having the right kind of content and having the right kind of franchise around the content, which is something Netflix is just learning these days from the transition of being a streaming service to now being a film studio to later touching base on what it is that Disney does so very, very, very well. Because if they have a franchise, then they have a, a supply chain of physical products and toys and so on, so that a movie release from the Star Wars franchise is not just ticket sales. 
it's it's uh, merchandise that almost makes up more of the revenue they generate from that kind of release, which is something Netflix is still scratching the surface on, so to say. So far, we've been mainly talking about this uh, global producer or these really huge distributors, but I was also curious about the small independent environment. I mean, how is the business model in that case? If I am a small uh, producer or a small uh, screenwriter, how can I work in this field? So if you are a producer and 2021, then you are starting to doubt the importance of having a sales agent and a distributor go out and make sure that your movie gets in front of an audience because you suddenly have the power of actually putting your content in front of a global audience through the range of uh, streaming services that are available these days. So through my work as a film marketeer, I'm starting to see a lot of uh, producers that are deciding to self-distribute their movie because they suddenly see, again, the content consumption of the world today is so very, very high, meaning, you know, the average audience consumes much more video than they've ever done in any history of time. And there's much more content to dive into. So therefore, if you first need to, to pay the sales agent and later on the distributor, then it's going to be very difficult for you to really make a return on your investment. So therefore, there's many more producers that are saying, okay, we'll rather go out and pitch our projects directly to the likes of uh, HBO Max or Peacock or Netflix or Amazon, so on and so forth. Regarding what we were saying before, basically now the producers are becoming distributors. So these these different roles are sort of merging together, right? Yes, exactly. It's a many-factor equation that has taken the industry to this place in time. You know, it's not solely a derivative from the fact that the sales agents couldn't go to the Cannes Film Festival to sell the film rights because of corona. It's been, what you could say, escalated or intensified as an effect of the fact that a player like Disney, for example, has now launched Disney Plus with a major success and they've tested the grounds with having these exclusive releases on their platform. So the whole value chain, not only from sales agent to distributor, but also from distributor to the cinema has been disrupted in this process, meaning that nowadays the cinemas cannot dictate the dynamics of the industry. And that's maybe something that's worth mentioning that before Corona, when you had a film going into cinema, then the cinema came back and said, okay, well, the next three months after your film premieres in cinema, you cannot sell it anywhere else. Meaning we want to make sure that when the film is in the cinema, that is where the money is being made. It's not going to be possible to watch it on your TV the week after or go out and buy the film on uh, Amazon, for example. That is simply because they could dictate the terms of the industry. That window as we call it in the industry, release window, the 90 days from a cinema release until it goes into a streaming service has become smaller as an effect of pressure from the film studios. And that is a major thing that has changed in regards to the value of the cinema release as well, because before you didn't even test what would happen if I also released my film directly on a streaming service while it is in cinemas, because the cinemas would simply say, if you do that, we're not going to show you movies. Don't even test it. Don't even try it because we're not interested in competing with any kind of streaming service. But that has that has forcefully been changed now that, that cinemas had to close for such a long time frame. Interesting. 
So if I am uh, an independent producer, I, for example, go to HBO, Netflix and tell them, you know, I have this project. And then what it could do is sort of finance this movie, but then they sort of own it and start basically working for them. And then when it's finished, I got my salary and then they got the movie and distribute on the platform. Is it like this? You're right in the sense that if you look at how the different studios selling rights to different intellectual property, and when I say intellectual property, I mean, for example, the rights to the series Friends or The Office. Those two has been shucked around between streaming services on two-year agreements because everybody knows that if you have friends on your platform, you're going to automatically get maybe 100 million subscribers because everybody loves friends. So when you're sitting and you want to watch friends, then you're going to sign up on that platform that has friends available. So that is why they are trying to move a bit away from shopping intellectual rights around between the platforms and are simply paying a ridiculous price to say, now we own it. We have two examples from the last week. We, we have Amazon that just paid $8.5 billion to acquire Metro Goldwyn's complete inventory. For those who doesn't know, Metro Goldwyn are the rights owners of the 007 James Bond uh, IP. It's uh, The Handmaid's Tale. It's the Adams Family. It's Legally Blonde. So what Amazon is doing here is they're buying access to these kind of franchises that are evergreen, so to say. I'm, I'm not going to argue who's going to always love Legally Blonde, but nonetheless, there's a lot of people that likes this series of movies. And if they're deciding to relaunch or remake that range of movies, then they have access to an audience that already loves this franchise simply. On the other hand, we also have Universal or the parent company of Universal, NBC Universal, that has just paid $400 million to just the scripts for the new Exorcism trilogy reboot. So before the film is even shot, someone is willing to pay $400 million just to make sure that this piece of content will exclusively be available either on their streaming service that's called Peacock. It's not in Europe at the moment, it's in the US, but, but Universal has their own platform called Peacock. So something has changed where exclusivity around franchise content now holds such a big value that you're willing to pay enormous sum of money to have access to that. And of course, where does that leave the small independent distributor? That is yet to be defined. I'm not certain where that kind of film will go in the future. I would say there's still a market for it. It's not that the whole world can only consume the Fast and the Furious and the, and the Star Wars franchise when they want to go and consume culture. There's still plenty of diversity in consumer behavior that still caters to these smaller independent producers. But I think, as I mentioned before, the industry will vertically integrate so that we are looking at these massive tech companies that will be having a vertical integration, meaning they own the production company, they own the scrub writers, they know the directors, they own everything from top to bottom from a film a production to a film release. And uh, I'm sure the, the indie films will fit into that ecosystem somehow, but it will simply be a different way of, of doing uh, and conducting business than it has until now. And here come a question that had to do with your job, actually. So how does a company like yours promote a movie? So you would like to hear a little bit how, how do you do that? Yeah. The majority of the work that we do at Groovy is helping 
these film distributors, independent distributors on releasing their movies. We also work with film studios in, in some kind of scale, but the majority of the work we get to do is on a very wide range of movies. If you took last year's Oscar winner, Parasite, then we had the pleasure of working on that, both in Singapore, but then later on in Poland and in, in Scandinavia. So we work with a very broad range of content from black and white Polish movies uh, all the way up to uh, something that is uh, very commercially driven for an audience. But it's just to give you an indication of the fact that I can't just tap into the mainstream cinema goer whenever I want to promote a film on behalf of film distributors. I have to be kind of refined to understand who will be willing to go in and see this documentary about whatever subject it might be compared to when, when we are working with something very commercially driven. So my finest task is to make sure to find the right kind of audience for any kind of film that I'm releasing. And nine out of 10 times in relation to the film going to the cinema, because as I mentioned before, that is where the money are being made. And that is the first distribution channel for most of the films that are being released and, and has been released. So, so that's usually where I step in. I can also help with the digital release, but it's mostly theatrically. And what is worth mentioning about a theatrical film release is that there is a very short time frame from the tickets coming to sale till the movie potentially can be either taken off the program or being given a time slot where we know not a, not a lot of people will be able to see it. So that means, let's take a, a real example. We have a film that are premiering on Thursday. That's the case in Denmark. It's always on Thursdays that new films get premieres. On Monday, the tickets are on sale. So it means I have from Monday and then seven days ahead to sell as many film tickets as possible. Because when we get to the week after, meaning the premiere weekend, then, as I said before, there are six new films that are being released. If the movie that I'm promoting haven't sold enough tickets, then it has to leave up the space at the, the most attractive time slot for new movies. And that is very, very, very unique compared to a film that will be on Netflix because I could promote it one week and then I could promote it again the next week to a new audience and then the week after to another audience. And I could refine and understand who are the real core audience for this type of movie. And I could learn as I go and I had plenty of time to get better at finding the right kind of audience uh, for this kind of movie. But here I have seven days. That's all I have to make sure that I find the exact right kind of audience for this movie. And another thing that I am battling with, so to say, is going to the cinema as a social exercise. So if I find a movie I want to see on the Tuesday, then I have to call Marco up and ask, do you have time to go to the cinemas on Saturday at 7? It's the case that Marco doesn't have time. Well, then we're already running a risk because if we said, okay, next Saturday, then we can maybe schedule that into our, our busy schedule. But at that point, the movie could actually already been limited to only be possible to watch at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. So there's many, you know, there's some clear obstacles or challenges that I as a marketeer go in and try and solve, especially for these uh, distributors that don't have a massive global advertising budget like the film studios of the world would have. I have a question. Looking at the future, do you believe that the cinemas will still be the, the major player regarding making money in the industry? Or do you see the streaming platforms really, really reaching the same level or even surpassing the cinemas? So we tried and crunched the numbers for Trolls 1 and 2, where one had a, a typical theatrical release and, and the two, the sequel had this uh, hybrid kind of release. And if you just look 
at film direct revenue from ticket sales or from uh, rentals, then it's uh, a one-to-one almost. The one made 100 million and the other made 100 million. But it's worth mentioning what they call the downstream revenue that comes on the back of the film release in, in cinemas. Because if you're releasing something digitally, it doesn't have the same kind of boss around a gala premiere where you have all the actors coming in. You don't have the, the whole reviews of the film that are kind of supporting the film release and making sure sure that this product also have a certain value when it is being sold to digital or it's being sold to TV. So I don't believe that the current model will convert into a way where it is not feasible for a film studio to discard cinemas. I still believe that cinemas will be relevant, but the content that are being used and, and, and consumed in cinema might change with technology. If I really take the future cap on, then I believe that people will always go out and consume content in some kind of social context. But if that is uh, you know, the traditional cinema-going experience that will, that will carry that for decades uh, in the future. I don't believe so. So so I think there was a kind of a vague answer uh, <laughs> to that. I also believe that people will, will uh, keep on uh, going out to cinemas as a social meeting point. I mean, to, to see some friends and so on. And also I was thinking about the, the special effects, but then I also thought, well, but actually TVs at home are getting bigger and bigger. I mean, I, I probably believe the cinema will still be a major player because of the social environment, actually. I think you are right about that thing. Like the one thing, because. 3D screens and, and sound systems has been around for a long time now. And if you look at global ticket sales for the cinema, then it is not the curve that are exponentially growing. It's kind of stagnated, but it's still showing a growth, meaning despite the fact that you can buy a sound system and a OLED TV for your living room, then you still prioritize going out at least a couple of times a year. It's kind of the average uh, sequence of cinema goers. I believe that what the real challenge is for the cinema is to convey what we call generation set to go into the cinemas because they are not buying the premise of saying if you turn on your mobile and it rings then it's a no-go in this kind of space it's, it's an observation that we've done at least that it is very difficult to marry the life of a generation set where everything takes place online and the mobile phone is your extended social life you cannot require them to turn this off just even a couple of hours in, in the cinema. So there's a lot of innovative projects around, you know, changing the concept around what is a cinema going experience where it doesn't have to be a silent experience in dark. It can actually also be a social kind of gathering where you at the moment, you know, don't really have anything to provide this social element while the film is taking place. But in the future, you could see that the whole introduction of augmented reality or virtual reality could make interactive storytelling something that will be so much a part of the experience that the cinema actually would have a competitive advantage because all of a sudden they would have VR glasses for 60 people at a time that would be able to play out the storyline of, of a movie and something you wouldn't be able to do at home in the same kind of setup. So who knows? I think they have a place, but there's some innovation to be done to keep being relevant, especially for what we call Generation Z. Yeah, so from this, I want to clarify, Generation Z are the people who were born from late 90s to the early 2010. We are further ahead, actually. So, so it starts. So today they will be born in 2007 and onwards. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A little bit younger. Sorry, I have to correct myself. 2000 and onwards, I think, would be a good way to place them. So today they will be 20, 13 to 20 years old. That, that are the ones that are declining the cinema uh, in the cinema experience. 
between 15 and uh, late 30s, I guess. Plus minus, yeah. Okay. So, Nicola, I just want to ask you the quick uh, last question. You talk about before that you have to sell tickets and you have to find exactly the right kind of audience. Can you tell us briefly what is the best way to access this generation uh, Z or, or the people in general in this new market of distribution? So one of the primary obstacles there is for any kind of marketeer is that before social media was a thing, then I could go out to the Hollywood Reporter or Vanity Fair and saying, I have this film releasing. Can I have a banner advertising on your website for the next two weeks? Because then I'll know I'll get access to the most attractive cinema file, uh, like movie fan that you will be able to find, because I know that they will be reading this kind of news being a fan of the cinema but the the point where most of the traffic online take place on social media meaning you know it's facebook that i put my my ad placement on and it's instagram it's tiktok and so on then i'm suddenly competing for the same ad with everybody else that are trying to sell products online so when i say finding the right kind of audience then it means before i could go to the hollywood reporter i could just pay them some money and then i knew that it would get in front of the right kind of audience but today i have to be able to figure out who is the right kind of audience today for this type of movie because consumer behavior is, is changing very drastically pop culture phenomenons are traveling much much further online all of a sudden so that you know i kind of treat film marketing as every day is a new market so you know i can look historically and understand okay this type of genre this type of cast this type of director tend to attract this kind of, of audience but i have to have a natural skepticism towards relying too much on historical data. Let's take an example. If I looked two years back, then I would put more money on Instagram stories than I would on TikTok, because TikTok is all of a sudden the new thing. And if I look six months ahead, then I wouldn't be certain that I would spend my money there because there could be more emerging platforms that are suddenly the right kind of place to show uh, ads to cinema goers. So in that sense, it's become much more of a proactive task of finding the right kind of audience, no matter where they are online, and also being able to cut through the noise because there's so many ads today. Well, Nikolai, thanks a lot for this amazing explanation, for, for your willing to enlighten us and uh, satisfy our curiosity. Thank you very much for, for having the opportunity to share a little bit of light on the film industry and uh, for having me uh, on the show. Yeah, and thanks a lot also from, uh, from my side. Thank you. For the listeners, if you have uh, questions, or suggestions or topical interests, you're very welcome to write to us. Goodbye to everyone and see you again in the next podcast. And uh, looking forward to talking about more things we don't know. Thank you. Bye-bye.